Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our mid-month show, we have an exclusive interview with Bath Film Festival creative director Philip Robbie. And we'll be catching up with Steve Wright for the latest from Cineworld. After that, it's our film news roundup. Neil will be telling us all about Will Ferrell's upcoming projects. I'll be talking Pygmalion and Graham. Well, that's going to be a surprise. Bloody bad. Finally, we welcome a new contributor to the show, Elijah, who will be talking classic movies this month. Blade Runner, one of my favourites. I can't wait. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror films. Hi, my name is Graham, and my cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Hi, my name is Neil, and I'll watch anything Jeff doesn't recommend. Wow, guys. Have you seen the comments regarding last month's Lucy section on Voice? (laughs) No, Jeff. If you remember, you limit my access to the show feedback. Probably because our listeners are still saying, well done, Neil, on the sports debate win. Bloody hell, Neil. You've now become a Brexiteer. <laughs> Someone who constantly brings up old victories, like World War Two. Go look in the mirror. That's not the reason. You could be the double of Kim Philby. How on earth can I trust you with state secrets? Wow, well, a new low. Congratulations. Jeff, drop that right now. Remember what happened the last time you mentioned the Russian spying agencies? Took ages for us to remove all those bugs. Just cut to the chase and tell us what is being said. So much, Graham, so much. In fact, I've received comments from listeners who don't normally write into the show. Comments are ranging from interesting debate to another generational divide, that's probably from my wife, to my favourite, you go, Lucy. Even our good Twitter friend Flip at Flippersond has commented on this. On my side, of course. So thank you for that, sir. The discussion will probably go nuclear when we broaden this out to include Adam Mackay's other political satire, The Big Short, on our end-of-month show. You will not hold me back from my views this time, Jeff. Now that you have begrudgingly allowed me to see the comments, I'm impressed by how many people have contacted the show. Graham, since we've gone weekly, what are our stats like? The stats are great, as always. We are fast approaching 500 unique downloads per month, and our arrival on Spotify has definitely boosted our numbers. The 500 number there is actual people, not bots or indexers or search spiders. Spiders! Not that kind of spiders, don't worry. So, actual listeners. We are now getting new listeners from all over the globe, but particularly Africa this month for some reason. We've had downloads from Zimbabwe, Gabon, Libya, South Africa and Mozambique. The wonders of the internet. Oh, a little teaser for all our African listeners. We are hoping to interview a director from Zimbabwe later in the year. Well done, guys. That's excellent, and we certainly have no shortage of content to come. Next week, we will start a new series of pod shorts. Phil, a.k.a. Phil the Bear, telling it like it is. He certainly does. (laughs) Just wait until we get to the extended discussion on the current hot topic, cinema versus streaming. However, that's in the future. Staying in the present, let's go to our first feature for this show. As we mentioned in our introduction, Philip Rabbi is the creative director of the annual Bath Film Festival. In fact, Philip is one of the founding members of the festival from its start back in 1990. 
Graham, could you please explain to our listeners just what a film festival creative director does? Certainly, Neil. The job of the creative director is to select the festival films and to programme when they'll be shown. The Bath Film Festival takes place very early in November, which means it is just before the awards season gets into high gear, so quality is high. Indeed, at the festival last November, one of the first films shown was The Favourite. It is no wonder with choices like this that the festival is so well attended, with so many events selling out. Let's now hand over to Jeff, who will give us some more fascinating facts and start our interview with Philip. Over to you, Jeff. Hello, and welcome to a very special interview with your At The Flicks team. We are here in Bath with Philip Raby, the creative director of the very successful Bath Film Festival, which has been running since 1991. The festival has expanded greatly since those early days, and Philip has been one of its major driving forces. To put how successful it is in perspective, in 2018, over half its events sold out, and there was an over 80% attendance in just about every other event. I am right in those figures? That is correct. Yeah. Philip, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi. So for our audience, could you please explain what a creative director of a film festival does? Well, it's pretty simple, really. I choose the films. So we run in November. We have to have everything locked down by September. So that means that pretty much from now, which is January, building up to a sort of period from June, July, August, September, when we're actually choosing films. You know, it's actually quite an enjoyable thing to do, because if you love film as much as I do, there's always something on the horizon. You're thinking, oh, you know. So it's like, it's like having a huge shopping list for Christmas, and it gradually gets whittled away. And then other surprises come along that you're not expecting. So you have to be incredibly flexible, but you also have to be really attuned to whatever's out there. There are things that you look forward to. I remember some of this, but there used to be a film magazine came out. It's like a, an industry magazine that would tell you all the films that were being made. And back in 1991, I noticed this little film with Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. And I thought, oh, that looks like an interesting film. I don't know why. And, and, and it was sort of buried in the middle of, you know, all yeah. these other big movies. And I thought, oh, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I look forward to that. So it's like, you, it's like having your antennae out for yeah. what what's going to be important and interesting. So is your finger on the pulse of what's filming at the moment? Yeah. I wouldn't know, not really anymore. But, I, you know, I, I look at IMDb, I look at launching films, I've got friends who go to film festivals, so, yeah, there's a sort of general sense of what's coming. Well, you certainly got your finger on the pulse, because what was your film that opened the bar film? The Favourite, The Favourite. Yeah. And we also had Can You Ever Forgive Me, which um, is about to come out, which I think... It's going to do really well, and it's had fantastic reviews. I unfortunately couldn't see it. But we're lucky because a long time ago, when I had a video shop in Bath, I employed someone called Tara, who, you know, was a very nice person to work there, and she went off and I never heard from her again. And then a few years later, we were trying to get hold of the King's Speech from Momentum, which was a distribution company then, and it turned out she worked there. So she let us have King's Speech, and now she works at Fox in theatrical sales. So last year we had three billboards, and this year we were the favourite, so... She basically makes sure that we get the best film we can. It's who you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, no, that was a, a, a winner of a film to open. Yeah, the and, and yeah, it's just a matter of luck in many ways. But unfortunately, the last film we had was The Old Man and the Gun at the closing night, which was not very good, I have to say. So Despite what everybody said, it was pretty tedious. 
Is it? Because that's on my to-watch list. I right, I will put it on your to-forget-about list. Is it? Okay. <laughs> okay. How did you get the man who killed Don Coyote? Because there's only you in London got that. Bizarrely, and you know, I think it's very odd, and they approached us, and it wasn't a distributor, it was a theatrical salesperson. So they sort of said, would you like to show this? And I went, yes, we really would. <laughs> yeah, they approached us, and they sent me a link, and I thought, yeah, it's actually pretty good, considering he spent 30 years trying to make it. Yeah. I'm so relieved they got Adam Driver rather than Johnny Depp in it. Um, I mean, the things about it, which are a bit Terry Gilliam-ish, but it's fun. Yeah. Jonathan Price is great. Again, it was just one of those things. I think because we've established a good reputation over the years, at one point a few years ago, the BFI said that the sort of programming benchmark for festivals would be our festival. That was like how to put a programme together. Yeah. So that was a bit of an accolade. It came to us. <laughs> we didn't say no. See, that's the place to be in when people come to absolutely, you. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so what prompted you to become a creative director? Oh, God, it's not something I ever looked for. All that happened was back in 1990, 91, whatever it was, Chris Baker, who was running the Film Society in Bath, decided to set up the festival. He got the three cinemas at that point. So there was the ABC, which is now Comedia, the Little, which is still there, and the Robins, which is now the Egg Theatre. So the three of them got together and with Chris and said, oh, we'll run a little film festival. And they were looking for somebody who was kind of outside the cinema circuit. And I was running this video shop was on the video front writing stuff for the local paper and they chris approached me and i said sure happy to yes please thank you uh always say yes and it just turned into the job i tended to do with programming and then when holly came along who's the executive director and we kind of worked out how to divide the roles we just called me the creative director because that was just a, a name so it's not like a role that you necessarily aspire to on your CV. You just end up in it. I mean, obviously, if you're running Toronto or something like that, it's a much bigger job. I prefer what I do. If I was running Toronto or Cannes or something like that, basically you're going to be assaulted by everybody wanting to show their films. Yeah. And I know from experience, I've been to Toronto, they show some really terrible films simply because they're made by so-and-so. The one I like to quote is a film which no one's ever heard of called Arthur Newman, which stars Colin Firth and Emily Blunt. Now, you'd think you'd have heard of that film, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. You tried tracking it down on IMDb. I don't think it ever got released in this country. Certainly not the cinema. I suspect not on DVD. Colin Firth, who, you know, it's only a few years ago, was playing a top American golf pro, which is a bad warning sign, who ends up sort of driving across America with a much younger Emily Blunt, breaking into people's houses when they're not there, and having sex. And that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, who suggested that they made this film? Yeah. It was terrible. And I sat there the first 20 minutes. I thought, oh, I know what. I'm having a dream. This is not, I'm not really watching this film. I'm dreaming. And I'm going to wake up in a minute and I'm going to be watching the real film. <laughs> so, and you think, we would never have shown that film in a million years. When you've got less to choose from, you can make more of it because you're not yeah. under pressure to show these great big titles that everyone will go, oh my God, you know, this is so terrible. But it is, as a creative director, it is your vision that drives the festival. Well, I don't want to... I, the vision word is always a bit pretentious. People say, do you have themes? Do you have a genre? Ooh. I say, yeah, my theme is good films. And obviously that's subjective, but there are nine of us. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm the sort of the, the big cheese, as it were, but everybody has a say. And if they decide that they all like something and I don't, then I put my hands up, fine, you know. So uh, if it was a you. filmmaker whose films you've never enjoyed... Yeah. And they said, well, there's new films coming yep. out. We'd like to put this in. Ideally, you want to watch a film if you can. Yeah. But big distributors won't let you see. So we couldn't watch The Favourite beforehand. Basically, you're going to have to go, OK, I, I like Yorgos Melanthemos mostly. Great cast. Really pleased they're making a film about Queen Anne. No one's ever made a film about Queen Anne before. I'm interested. Old Man and the Gun had great reviews. 
In retrospect, I wouldn't have shown it. Previews are one thing. That the, the ones that you choose are the ones that are either sent to you yeah. or that are released before the festivals. So a South American film was sent to us ages ago, and I really liked it. It was made by a woman. You know, we're Afro-Asian. We show lots of films written by women. They seemed really keen for us to show it. We were all set for it. And then they suddenly asked for ridiculous amounts of money. She said, well, I'm sorry, we can't afford that. There was another film which I loved to have shown, made about Emily Dickinson called Wild Night, My Wild Nights with Emily, which was the most weird and wonderful comedy about Emily Dickinson, uh, made by a woman and no one you'd really heard of in it. It was just fantastic. And again, they wanted ridiculous amounts of money. I think sometimes they think, because we're a film festival, we must have money. And that's why you end up working with distributors who've bought the rights to it. And you know what you're going to be charged, 50% for a preview, 35% for not a preview. But when you're dealing with sales agents or people overseas, they sometimes ask you know, for money that you just can't afford. So there's a lot of the whole thing of killing your darlings. You know, you have to let go of things that you really, really want, but you can't do it anymore. And then other things come along and yeah. it's, yeah. you know. I would imagine even London would turn around to, to places like that and say... We're not showing it. We can't afford that. Yeah, but they wouldn't need to because they, they, they don't, if I'm being not too unkind, I don't think they're that bothered about quality. They're, they, what right. they want is big titles and big names. Yeah. They probably could afford more. But mostly I don't think London pays for films. I'm pretty sure Toronto doesn't pay for films. I think, if anything, people beg on their bended knees to show them there. It's a different relationship. We're big among smaller film festivals, but we're not a big festival. But you're at the right time as well, aren't you? I mean, you've got the run into the award season, so it starts with Venice, sure. usually kicks it off. You've got Cannes, you've got Berlin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so at November it's great. is when these things are really sure. starting to consolidate. So yeah, I'm, I'm not complaining about anything. But the fact is that people will sometimes want too much money for films yeah. that you'd love to show, and you think, yeah. you're, you're mad. No one else is going to show this film. Yeah. It, you have to be incredibly flexible, and sometimes you just have to say, sorry, you know, can't do it. When's your absolute cut-off date, then? Six weeks before the opening night. Now, I mean, that's nothing. If you talk to the literature festival here, or the music festival here, they book up months ahead. Yeah. They think we're mad to do it the last minute. You say, well, that's how film works. So we have got the Odeon, so they've got a big screen, what, biggish screen, 130-odd, and a smaller screen with 50. So you've got to work out which screen do you put things in. You know RBG that's just come out about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, the, which is a wonderful six. film. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's a documentary. Oh, about the documentary. Her. There's, two, there's yeah. two. So we put it in screen one, and it wasn't full, but if we put it in screen two, we wouldn't have fitted everybody in. So you're juggling around which which do you put where? You know, some films obviously you put in the big screen, like the favourite, and then you put the biggest screen that you can get. And other ones you're juggling around. So there's not only which titles you show, it's where you show them and how big an audience you can get. So there's an awful lot of faffing about, but it's kind of fun. Doesn't give you sleepless nights, then? No, I don't believe in That's sleepless nights. That's a new nights. definition of fun. <laughs> well, a lot of, apparently it's fun because I don't have to do it. I don't do all the juggling of screens. Oh. I just do the films. <laughs> and every year you try and learn lessons. You think, what lessons have we learned from last year? And you think, well, you learn some lessons, but actually you can't foresee things. You can't predict what will happen. You know, one thing, so one year we sold out Tehran Taxi. Do you know? Yes. That was the f- film that sold out fastest. And you think, what? You know, and other years there are films that, you know, are fantastic and just can't get people to go and see them. So it's like, you know, the whole William Goldman thing of nobody knows anything. Yes. Yeah. It's the same with the film festival. We don't know what people are going to want to watch. You know that Fable will be popular, you know Don Quixote will be yeah. popular, but other things, you know. You mentioned earlier about sort of a lot of women directors, yep. um, which is really good. And yep. I think the way the whole industry is changing that is excellent. But I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were the first festival to bring in the F rating? Well, we invented it. I said, well, Holly invented it. So probably four or five years ago now, because she, she's a you know, passionate feminist and I'm, I'm right behind her. She just said we should have some benchmark 
which A, illustrates the fact that films have been made by women and indirectly reveal how few films were made, made by women. Yeah. So by pointing out which films are made by women, you go, yeah. look how few there are. And it's been sort of slightly modified. And now we simply say... If a film is directed by a woman, it's got an F rating. If it also is written by a woman and stars a woman in a role which doesn't involve talking about men, then that's triple F rated, sort of like gold star. It's a fairly simple thing. And, it, and to be honest with you, most people don't care. They don't go, oh, who made the film? Is it by a woman? Oh, I'm not going to see that. You know, no one didn't go and see Wonder Woman because it was made by a woman. So it's more an industry thing rather than an audience thing. But it's also a way of, of us putting out the message that, you know what, it, there's a very, very imbalanced in film industry going on here, even now. Yeah. So would you say it's more of a mirror on the industry? Like yeah, it is I'd say it's more like of a mirror than, than an audience thing. I mean, I think audiences like the idea of it. I think mm. they're keen on the idea, but they don't check out each film based on who made it. There are a few directors who people probably go and see, whether it's Spielberg or Tarantino or, or whatever, but mostly they just go because who's in it or whether they've heard of it or whether yeah. the reviews are good and... So I think it's the industry that's got the problem yeah. about who they choose to make films, not not the audiences. Do you think with all the Weinstein controversy that will change? No, I think I, mean, I think it is changing, but I think, you know, if we sat here in 10 years' time, I would be very surprised if it was 50-50. Mm. I'd be thrilled, but I'd be surprised because it's people, you know, you know the whole thing, unconscious bias, people hire people like them. So yes. middle-aged white men like middle-aged white men, yeah. you know. I'm a cynical optimist, so you know, <laughs> I'm cheerful, but I'm not convinced that people are as sensible as I'd like them to be. And I guess the marker of that will be when the summer seasons start changing, because those are the tenfold things, and until then... Yeah, I mean, I mean Holly, Holly's view, which I think is, is very sensible, is that women should be allowed to make bad films as well as men. You can't say, well, you know, we're going to give women a chance to make films, and if they're not any good, then, you know, it's like, well... Men make lots of bad films. Why can't women make bad films too? The point is, who gets to tell the stories? We spoke earlier about the Yes, Please and Thank You yeah. um, yes. piece that you've done on YouTube. Yeah. And to anybody listening to this, I seriously would recommend you check it out. It's a brilliant talk. And I like the positivity of that. And does that help when you're getting guest speakers and directors to come to the festival? And particularly, I mean, you give reference in the talk about Colin Needham, co-founder yeah, of Yeah, that was, that was a sort of geographical lucky break in the sense, the fact that he happened to be in Bristol, and if you've met Cole, but he is the most positive person I've ever met in my life. Yeah. I mean, talk about saying yes to things. So this is not, well, it is name-dropping, but it's trying not to be name-dropping. So when I used to go to Toronto, which I don't anymore, he, he's always there. So occasionally we'd watch films together. And I had lunch together with him afterwards, one, one film, and it was Under the Skin, which is um, that dreadful Scarlett Johansson film. Um, pretentious moi. And, yeah. and I said to him, OK, because he, I said, could you explain to me what happened? So he tried really hard to make sense of it. And then I said, Colin, you're fantastic about being positive about films. Tell me a film you don't like. And it took him a long time <laughs> to really come up with one. And it was that Terence Malick film with Brad Pitt and the Dinosaurs, Tree of Life, I think it is. And he said yeah. he did find he had, a pro, had a problem with that. Basically, it was a, a kind of lucky break that he happened to be down the road. You know, it took a while to get hold of him. But once we met him, he's the sweetest guy you could possibly... He comes to every festival, him and his wife, Karen. They, you know, they rock up and they come to the party and they come to as many films as they can. And he says, oh, yes, I've seen this one before. I'm really looking forward to seeing it again. And he sees so many films. So we were just lucky that he was there and he's such a nice guy and he loves what we do. He supports us and it's, you know, you just get lucky sometimes. Clearly, you've got a great knowledge of films. And I love what I was reading um, on one of the websites about your 
opinions on certain films and there were three films mentioned two of which we're going to agree with Mamma Mia and The Sound of Music I hate musicals so that's easy <laughs> well the greatest showman has been a class I hate musicals yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just non-negotiable West Side Story and then everything else is terrible not even Singing in the Rain that's not a musical in my definition Ooh. of things it's not a musical okay why I, don't, I, I couldn't defend that it's completely an indefensible point of view <laughs> <laughs> okay I love Singing in the Rain okay and I love West Side Story but yeah cause... I suppose the, the difference I don't know if you can quite make it work yeah they do kind of stop and sing but I don't know. It somehow feels more integrated into the plot. I yeah. Don't know. Okay. Yes, we agree on singing in the rain. No, okay. Fine. My last one on musicals yeah. and all that jazz. I think I saw it when it came out, and and I don't think it made any impression on me at all. So I don't. I, I would never go back and watch it, but I'm sure it's a masterpiece. Touche. So let's get to the real part of this question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blade Runner. Oh God. So okay. What, what is it about Blade Runner you don't like? Everybody likes, not only does everybody like different films, but they come at films from a different perspective. Yeah. And I think it's to do with the way you, re- you, know, you respond to the world. So I'm interested in character, I'm interested in relationship, I'm interested in narrative, I'm interested in understanding more about the world. Ridley Scott and those who like Blade Runner are interested in the way things look. It's sci-fi, which I don't like either. I don't like genre films. To me, it doesn't have any anything more than Harrison Ford looking miserable in the rain. Um, and it doesn't have any deeper meaning. It doesn't have any purpose. He doesn't have any relationships with anybody. He can't act. Uh, the music is tedious. Um, and, and the sequel was actually not much better, much as I love Ryan Gosling. Yeah, um, I didn't like the sequel. Um, I so couldn't see the point in either. Yeah. If you put me in front of both the films, I go, I no idea what you're talking about. You should it's, sit on the fence. No, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, so my, my attitude to life is have strong opinions about things that don't matter. Yes. You have an open mind about things that do matter, right? So you're talking about the Middle East or, you know, lots of things I'm happy to have an open mind. Films, music. I'm going to be as blunt as I like. Cause, that's, yeah. Who that's cares? Good. It's only well, an opinion. And, and that's part of the and fun you, of it. Do you, do you want the Clint Eastwood yes, quote on opinions? Yeah. I'm sure you've heard this one. Opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. Everyone thinks everyone else stinks. How true is it's that? It's only an opinion. Yeah, look. The fact and, that I watch a lot of films doesn't make me know more than anybody else. And, you know, let's face it, Blade Runner was not a big hit when it came out. No, it was no, a lot. Very, very you know, the, the, I mean, the other thing, as William Goldman, I'm sure, would agree, is the film is always about the script. You know, yeah. it's, either, it's a good script or not a good script. Yes. Forget the actors, forget the director, forget it's either it's a good script or it's not. So, th- somebody we know in Bath made Robin Hood this year, poor guy. And, <laughs> uh, you know, clearly the script was, I haven't seen it, but clearly the script was a disaster from start to finish. So, however hardworking, diligent a director you are, whatever cast you've got, if you've got a script with like a Gruyere, then you're doomed. And directors don't always have control over that. No, it's very fair. I think it's, what, Spielberg, Christopher Nolan, probably about the only two these days, uh, maybe Scorsese to a certain right. extent, yeah. that can call the shots and final cut. But, but, but even then, doesn't mean they make a good film because they're not necessarily good judges of scripts. Yes. You know, most films go on too long. Absolutely. Um, and I suggest that Scorsese hasn't really made good film in about 25, 30 years. Goodfellas? What's the Goodfellas. best film since Goodfellas? Uh, Hugo, I liked. I, I liked it. it, but I wouldn't say it's a great film. On the subject of Scorsese, yeah. you put on a screening of Last Temptation of Christ. With yes, the with, with Thelma. Yeah. yeah, so this this was a sort of passion project because I, uh, for a long time, was convinced that it was an un- unrecognised masterpiece and I love the soundtrack, um, Peter Cable, which mm-hmm. kind of introduced world music 
to the world. Yeah. So I had to say, why should church in Bath Abbey? So I actually got the director of Bath Abbey and a couple of people come around here about 10, 12 years ago and watched it with them. And I could tell by the end of the film this was not going to happen. And I thought, oh, well, never mind. You know, I gave it the best shot. And they said, well, it's a really interesting film. We, you know, but we just can't show it the audience congregation wouldn't have it. So a couple of years later, I was invited by a friend who, who does something called Soul Soundings, which is basically singing within choirs in Wales Cathedral, and went down there, and we had a really nice time singing. And I was invited for a drink afterwards and, and met a woman who, I can't what the title was, but she was part of Wales Cathedral. I said, oh, I've always been wanting to show this Last Temptation of Christ, you know, but Bath Abbey wouldn't have it. She said, oh, I'm sure we'd love to show it. Great. I went down and met them, and they said, fine, yeah, we're well, happy to show it. So I contacted Thelma, and she said, yes, I'll come over, and I'll be there, and I'll come over, and I'll also get Scorsese to film a little introduction for it. And then, of course, it became a media thing, so they dragged out some mad Christian who was saying it was, <laughs> it was blasphemous, and whatever you think of the film, Scorsese was trained as a Catholic priest, you know, he's got intentionally religious feelings. It's not blasphemous. It's simply suggesting that Jesus was a slightly more complicated person. And and, Um, and also, from, and this is what I never understand with Christians on this film, is it shows what he gave up. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's only because there's sex in it. That's the only reason to object to it. It was quite complicated because you can imagine, you can show a silent film. So we'd shown The Passion of Joan of Arc in Bath Abbey. if you heard about that, we did that with um, Will Gregory from Goldfrapp and Adrian Artley from Portishead and 25 Musicians. So that was, so <laughs> this is the bizarre thing. So we'd managed to get that arranged. So that was in Bath Abbey, which was just wonderful. So it was a silent film with live music. Great. But we did that in November ended up doing The Last Temptation of Christ in February in Wales. So it was like two big, big things about three months apart. But in Wales, because it's a speaking film, you can't just have speakers because the sound's going to bounce around everywhere and you can't hear a thing. Long delay. So we had to have... Everyone had to have a little little thing on their lap with headphones. Okay. So if you'd gone in during the film, you wouldn't have heard a thing because everyone's sitting there with their headphones on. And I was convinced that one or other mad Christian was going to make a dash for the screen and stab it with a knife. So I sat on the aisle seat with my leg ready to come out if I saw anybody approach. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to... And So Thelma did come down. It was wonderful. And Scorsese made a little introduction, which, you know, filmed and saying, I'm really thrilled that you're showing it. Because the film never really got recognition because there was so much controversy about it. But I have to say, after about the fifth time of watching, I did become... I did think it was a bit too long at two hours, 40 minutes. Because you sort of, you get to the crucifixion, oh gosh, we're nearly there. And then there's this whole extra thing when, you know, they go through all the stuff with St. Paul and stuff like that. It was one of those moments you think, this is, my dream has been realised and it happened because I was determined that it would. And I can sort of go and lie down now and forget about it. What was the audience reaction after the film? Everybody's very enthusiastic. I mean, I think some people said it was a little bit long. But no, they were really thrilled to have been there. I mean, you wouldn't go to it if you weren't. No. And it was was literally a one-off. You know, it will never be shown in a place like that again. You will never have Thelma Schumacher there again. You will never have Scorsese introducing it. So it was like, if you miss that. And and personally speaking, I would rather see Last Temptation of Christ, the film I do like, than The Passion of the Christ. Oh, absolutely, which is a hideous film. Yeah, the the level of violence and gore in that film. But this is the irony that Christians prefer violence to sex. Anyway, again, we'll... (laughs) Yes, yeah. Let's not generalise. No, no, no. no. (laughs) So you had some great films in the last festival, including Favourite, Shoplifters, Beautiful Boy, Lizzie, Colette. How long did it take you to put that programme together with all of those? How long was a piece of string? I mean, what oh, do you okay. mean? Do you mean how many months did it take, or how yeah. many total when do you, hours? When do you or? start? Are you like I never stop? I never stop. Oh, okay. I mean, 
clearly in January, I can't book films for November. Yeah. But my, you know, as I said, my kind of consciousness of what's coming is never. I probably we don't really start programming till May or June, right? But after that, it's as a continuous process. But it's not all day, every day. I don't go, you know, I don't I never go into hardly ever go into the office. So I mostly do stuff from home. We have meetings initially once a month, and then once every two weeks, and then probably every week. So it's like a sort of gradually accelerating process. Do you get sent lots of screamers at home? Uh, Say, have a look at this film. I haven't done yet, so we'll wait and see. Yeah. I, I never know. I may get hundreds of them, I may not get many. But because I'm doing the Channel 1 as well this year, it's just sort of yeah. slightly different because I'm also thinking about that rather than about November. And how's Cheltenham going? It's fascinating because it's a whole different relationship because rather than being like the big dog who gets to say what happens, I'm to some extent deferring to higher powers. So it's, it's interesting. I'm very impressed with Leslie's capacity to generate people who want to come. Uh, yes. I don't know if I can learn from him because I think he's in a whole different league from me. I just admire it. But and I think it's really interesting starting from scratch with the limitations of not having a cinema to work with. So you didn't ask me what my favourite films were. Oh, all right, we'll put that back in because this is not ahead. So, Philip, yes. what are your favourite films? Well, I've got three. So, number one would be Les Enfants du Paradis, which is a French film made in 1945, sort of filmed while the Germans were still in France, in Paris, and released afterwards, usually regarded as the greatest French film ever made. Three hours, black and white, unbelievably wonderful. Then I would choose Groundhog Day, because I think it's the greatest comedy with subtext, which not everybody gets. So, when it came out, people said to me, you know... The same thing keeps happening over and over, as if that was an annoying thing. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a piece of genius to make a film that funny, which says so much about yeah. life. Uh, and then the third one, simply because I watched it repeatedly when I was young and it still moves me, is Andrew Montalmations. The okay, original Andrew yeah. Montalmations. You know. Could have been any early Disney film, but I loved that film so much when I was a kid. So. There are hundreds of others, but, but those, are those will do. Top three. Those are my kind of easy-to-say ones. Okay, well, thank you very much for your Pleasure. Time. Pleasure. It's very and, good of you to put uh, up my, my rabid ramblings. No, that, that's, that's brilliant. A really nice and knowledgeable guy. We always like it when our guests have more film knowledge than Jeff. <laughs> Again, thanks for your time, Philip. Oh, and by the way, in the interview, we referenced Philip's excellent TED Talk, Yes, please, and thank you. We think it is a message well worth checking out in these times and would recommend it. We've also put a link in the show notes. From festival news, let's go to what's opening in the UK cinemas over the next couple of months. We caught up with our friend, Cineworld manager, Steve Wright, for the latest. OK, Jeff, over to you. Welcome from your At The Flicks team, sitting in new offices with Steve. Steve, very impressive. Um, Not bad, right? Not yeah, bad. yeah. So, welcome to the show. Thank you. And how's the new role going? I'm really enjoying it. I'm absolutely loving it at the moment. Uh, as, as you can see from all the furniture that's surrounding you, there's a lot of minor works going on. But yeah, loving it. It's a great role for me. A bit closer to home as well, which is always a bonus. So yeah, it's going really well. And it's a lovely little cinema, this. So is there anything you can say about Cheltenham at the moment? Yeah, I've, I've literally just handed Cheltenham over to the new general manager uh, yesterday. Uh, as people of Cheltenham would have seen from walking by, there's a lot of refurbishment works going on there at the moment. Uh, the screening rooms has temporarily been closed for the refurb. Donned my hard hat and my high-vis to walk around. It's looking great already, and they haven't even begun. 
Uh, screens 10 and 11 have been closed for the last couple of weeks as well. Whilst that gets uh, full refits, all the seats have come out, new seating's going in. Uh, they're adjusting the rake, so the angle of which the seats right. are at, so okay. the viewing position's a lot better. Uh, toilets have been closed as well. Everything in that building is getting a full kit out at the moment. It is going to be a long process. It's expected to run through until mid to tail end of the year so there's quite a lot going on um, but they're doing it in stages so it's not gonna impact massively on the films we've got coming out over there so that people can still go and watch the big releases as well as some of the smaller releases as well and indeed that brings us on to what we've actually got coming up as the lineup of films and what our lineup it is between now and easter yeah it's a crazy lineup so Captain Marvel kicks it all off. It'll be a big, big opening. Yeah, we know that's going to be a huge opening. Marvel films always are. We are doing a midnight screening, I believe, over in Cheltenham. So what else have we got coming then between that? Just after Captain Marvel, one of the films that I think is going to do very well, uh, but it's not a huge release, is What Men Want. So this right. one is a comedy. It's, it's basically a female version of Mel Gibson film oh, what Mel. women want what women, yeah. yeah Grim is what women want is that a good film I don't <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that one I think is going to do well it's not going to be huge but you know fun light hearted film that'll be interesting um, so yeah that one's the 15th of March uh, same time as that we've got Fisherman's Friends so on Sunday, we went to see uh, Fighting With My Family. Oh, right, OK. And they had the trailer. It's the first I've seen of Fisherman's Friends, and it looks great. It looks really yeah, good. Yeah, it's the first I've seen as well, is that, uh, the, the trailer that we've played with uh, Fighting With The Family, which has it, been huge, actually. It's been really popular, Fighting With My Family. So a lot of people would have already seen Fisherman's Friends trailer. Anyone yeah. that hasn't, go check it out on YouTube. It does look great. Again, I don't think it's going to be a huge release. It'll, it'll probably run for a couple of weeks, but I think it'll do well. It's from the makers of last year's surprise hit Finding Your Feet yeah I love that um, I, I actually went to the gala opening of Western Supermare Cineworld and it was the film they had on there for oh, the gala brilliant. and it was such a feel good film it is throughout, yeah. but then really got you at the end hopefully this will go along the same vein and do very well so in a completely different vein us yeah, very different <laughs> uh, this looks freaky it's actually one that myself and my friend Mike have got bookmarked for uh, reviewing on our podcast that oh, we right. do because he loves his horror films. I can't stand them, so he's dragging me along. Very different, like yep. being basically stalked and hunted down by doppelgangers. That so, what I would recommend before you and Mike watch it, yeah. track down an old Twilight Zone episode called Mirror Image because right, that okay. was the basis for us. Now, Mirror Image is not a great Zone episode. But the idea is solid, and that's what he's expanded on in the okay. film. Okay, I will definitely check that one out. Yeah. That week's fairly slow, and then it ramps right up. We've got Dumbo. This yeah. is, I mean... It's Tim Burton, Steve. You're, you're going to be happy. You'll see the poster behind me already yeah. uh, in my office. I'm so excited for this one. It's Tim Burton. I'm very, very happy. Everything I've seen so far, I think he's doing the original Disney animation justice. It looks good quite dark in some places so yeah. I'm slightly concerned how the younger ones are going to handle it but yeah this I'm so excited about my kids are pestering me you're going to take me to see it as well so I'm like yep yeah, I'll definitely take you my Tim Burton love is rubbed off on them certainly the oldest one one thing on this I'll be interested in see if they do something like Pink Elephants on Parade which yeah. was just way out there in the original <laughs> when, when you're in trouble and you're feeling down yeah. turn to alcohol <laughs> yes that's the message and alcohol is the answer <laughs> kids don't listen <laughs> 
But then it ramps up again. Another slightly out there superhero film, Shazam. Yes. Um, this this looks really funny. For me, it looks like a cross between Flash and Big. I think it's going to be great. I think there's going to be a lot of one-liners in there. We know kind of what to expect already. It's not going to blow the world away, but it is going to be great fun to go and watch. That yeah. one's early April for that one, so we're, yeah. we're quite looking forward to that. That will be showing, hopefully, an IMAX over at Cheltenham it all depends on building schedules over there and whether or not IMAX has been closed for a refurb but fingers crossed it'll be showing an IMAX Excellent. Well, one thing on that, Shazam, and the whole DC, well, as Graham calls it, universe, it's just a series of films, really, is DC seem to now uh, have taken this approach of each of their films is standalone. Mm. So where Marvel tie things in and there's a continuing storyline, like Aquaman and Shazam seem very separate entities. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone that knows comic book series of these, they're... You, you never really see Shazam around with Aquaman. It's the Justice League if it's going to be anything. That's where it will all tie together when it comes to the DC Universe. Aquaman was massively popular, did really, really well, and they've just announced, I believe, uh, Aquaman 2, yeah. the release date for that. So it's doing well. I think Justice League's been put slightly on the back burner with Batfleck leaving. So you've got a couple of animated films coming out around this time as well, haven't you? So there's Wonder Park. That's the 12th of April. That one we we got the stand in the other day and it's huge and my building's not that big so we decided that's not going up here but i'm sure that uh cheltenham have got that one up already i've not really seen too much about it but i believe it is oh i can't think of the actress's name mila kunis there we go thank you she was on the ellen show the other day talking about it actually okay. and the short little clip that i saw it looks good fun um she was talking about she wanted to make a film her kids could go and watch for a change so i'm sure it'll be a fun film for all the family well they've got john oliver doing one of the voices so that'll be interesting where that goes <laughs> yeah so we also have missing link this is a bit of a strange looking film uh with the yeti we had the standee for this one as well and it's actually life-size and it's got the tape measure by the side of it kids loved it so much it's been destroyed in my cinema so i have to throw <laughs> it away everyone wanted photos with it Hugh Jackman in this one. Hugh Jackman can do no wrong at the moment. He is flavour of the month, year, decade, I think. Yeah, and if he throws a couple of songs into that yeah. film, you're away. I mean, absolutely. I would love that. And my daughter would definitely love that, uh, being big fans of the musical stuff. And... Yeah, like I say, Hugh Jackman, he's just everywhere at the moment. He even turned up at the Brit Awards. Like, you're an actor. Why are you at the Brit yeah. Awards, man? But everyone seems to absolutely love him at the moment. And I think that is, I believe, the Easter half term. That one comes out, 5th of April. That's just when, just, certainly just here. Just before, yeah. yeah. So they're going to stack them up. So I think that and Wonder Park will certainly run yeah. throughout the Easter half term. It'll be the ones to take the little little kids to. If you don't want to see animated films, I think you're going to talk about something a bit more for the adults. Well, now. we've got a couple. So there's the one for the sort of, I would say, teens to sort of mid 20s and possibly you chaps as well uh, Hellboy Hellboy again another sort of remake reimagining of the story for me Hellboy will always be Ron Perlman yeah and the fact they've got this new guy in he doesn't look anywhere near as big it's much more sort of one-liners little quips here and there it looks 
hilarious though I, I like Neil Marshall who the director he directed The Descent he's done some episodes of Game of Thrones some of the key episodes yeah. so I've got my fingers crossed for this. yeah I can imagine that, I'm hoping it's not all just going to be comedy 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 and a lot of films like this tend to go along the Deadpool route mm. I feel they've gone oh Deadpool did really well they've got a decent formula here let's follow it I'm hoping this one doesn't do that because I'm a massive fan of the comics so I'm really hoping this one will do well and then for the much older <laughs> sort of children we've got the remake of Pet Cemetery. oh I'm into that. <laughs> that, that I'm hoping that'll be my review film for the month I just got to persuade Neil and Graham I'm, I'm sure they'll love to go and see it shortly yeah <laughs> <laughs> Right with you there, Jack. Right with you. We'll visit a pet cemetery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Name name the pet cemetery. Yeah. Wander around it with you? Yeah. She's a bit weird. Strange boy. Not one I'm going to be going watching, to be honest, because it still would probably freak me out. They've they've changed a couple of things around. There is a rumour that you actually get to see the creature that lives in the woods. Right, Okay. Uh, that could be interesting. Yeah, there's only rumour. Nobody's really talking a great deal about it. But again, Stephen King seems to be around quite a lot. Obviously, they've just talked about it too, which released date for that. And September. Yeah, they've, we'll talk more about it. I'm sure nearer the time. But I've just heard that it's got the scariest scene in any horror movie ever. Yeah, I've heard about um, this. So I guess you boys will be out. <laughs> yeah, they've got to catch up with part one first. We'll be fine. Yeah, we'll be fine. <laughs> be there. Yes. Yeah. Two great films there for the the older children, like I say. Um, <laughs> that I'm really looking for. Before we then move in to Dragged Across Concrete, isn't that starring Mel Gibson? I think so. Oh, right. <laughs> so yeah, that one's 19th of April. Oh, just in time for Graham to review it. I for was going to say, I'm sure Graham can tell us much more about well, this film yeah, than yeah, anyone else. We, we have an online <laughs> listeners' petition for wanting Graham to review it. We're up to a couple of hundred signatures yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your imagination, I've sent you the list, Graham. <laughs> ah, that's right. 101. I'll put mine on. <laughs> no, don't, don't, don't yeah. get involved. Don't bow to pressure. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to sound awful on this yeah, podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, sorry, we've lost Steve. I don't know what's gone wrong. <laughs> uh, and then sort of finishing up the uh, Easter period, we've got the big one. It's going to be huge. We all know it's going to be huge. We all want to know what's happening, which I think is going to drive people into Captain Marvel just to get a kind of sense of where we're at. Uh, yeah. Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. This is it's going to knock everything else out of the park if it doesn't finish up being the top grossing film for Cineworld of the year I'll be very very surprised the only thing I can see beating it is Star Wars at the end of the year yeah I think you're right I, I actually think this film could go on to end uh, you know beating Avatar to be the most successful film of all time because it's just built that momentum up and everybody will want to see if it if they get it right that's the important part I if, think if they get it wrong it'll still earn over 2 billion worldwide I, th- I think it will but it could make a lot more if they get it right, I think this is... It's multiple viewings, isn't it? Everything that's built up to this. And the fans out there are me being a huge, huge Marvel fan. So far, the films they've released, some have been good, some have been great, some have been awful. We use the word awful. It could be a lot worse. To be honest, the last Avengers, I wasn't overly impressed with it. Well. it. It was okay. 
mm. at best. So this they have to get right, otherwise, for, for me, it's I'm confused at the moment. You know, we've got Spider-Man coming out later in the year, but spoiler alert: those that watched the last Avengers film, he's, dead. he's a bit of dust in the yeah. wind. So how's that one going to work? Where does it fit in in the timeline? I, it's all just all over the place a little bit, and. They need to kind of explain where the other films fit in the timeline yeah. whilst making this the ending to it all. So, yeah, with Avengers, I mean, the trailer looks great. All the characters that survived the last one seem to be back. I know there's a lot of rumours around potentially Chris Evans is leaving the role of Captain America. So is he going to survive? Is he going to be killed off in this one? Nobody knows. Gwyneth Paltrow is Pepper Potts. She's already said, no, she's no. too old. She's done. So how are they going to work that one? Is she just going to walk? away is she yeah. going to end up dying we just don't know and everybody is so excited for this one I, I know I'll be putting it on for a staff screening before it even gets released to the public just so I know what's going on <laughs> um, it's not like I get to watch them once it's out for the general public I'm too busy serving the popcorn <laughs> you will be for that yeah be manic. absolutely so that's a stunning lineup of films there yeah um, and that's just the big releases I mean there's some other smaller ones dotted around that as well as the one day specials that Cineworld always try and do so there's so many of these oh, if I was to Joni 75 a woman who shares a birthday with Neil um... <laughs> yeah we've also got Diana Ross so that is the 26th of March for that one people are going to go and see that um, yeah. fans of her music we've got playing in Cheltenham actually The White Crow and this has got a live Q&A with the director Ralph Fiennes that's 12th March so that's the one about Rudolf Nureyev. Okay. As well as the National Lives that we've still got. So All About Eve, National Live Theatre, that's the 11th of April. Bolshoi Ballets. They're so, yeah, so As you like many. it as well for the Shakespeare fans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one's uh, 17th of April. Yeah, 17th of so April. yeah, there's so, so many. And you've got a very special screening of uh, an old classic on the 24th of March. So that one, yes, this was something I grew up watching with my granddad and actually all of the family. So The Great Escape, it is a very special showing, uh, as you say, on the 24th of March. It's the 75th anniversary gala screening and there will be a Q&A with Dan Snow. Yeah, and... and uh... Yeah, you know, he's his knowledge of that film is is and the real events mm. is fantastic. So yeah. I imagine that'll be very informative. My advice is, if you haven't got your tickets yet, get them quick because mm. it's going to be very popular. So, Steve, is there anything else you'd like to bring to the attention of our audience? Um, so obviously, things we're kicking off early this year with children in need. So. Keep an eye out on the Facebook pages and stuff like that because there will be a lot of events going on starting pretty much from the Easter half term onwards in both Cheltenham and Whitney, pretty much all of our cinemas. We're going all out to beat our total that we reached Excellent. last year. Just as I always say, those unlimited customers that we have out there and those that aren't, certainly go and sign up for an unlimited card we really do appreciate the loyal customer base that we have that have those unlimited cards watch this space because there is actually some offers coming up very soon where you can get money off your first month subscription so there's that and if you sign up for an annual one as well you get an extra month free please keep an eye out for that there'll be codes that you can pick up in store to either take away and sign up at 
home or you can sign up right there in the cinema and you get money off in certain restaurants as well absolutely yeah so there's national partners in terms of restaurants and each cinema tends to have its own local partners as well you can find all of those on the website so just we finish up how's your podcast going it's been a steep learning curve uh, we've just released the second full length show we're really enjoying it we've changed the format the first one the original format that we had that went straight out the window we were like yeah this doesn't work let's try again we've kind of split it to film reviews gaming reviews we're finding it very difficult with the gaming reviews because it becomes very expensive to buy the games every month so rather than it just being about games released that month we're looking at what's going on in the gaming community with e3 coming up which is a big gaming convention conference there's going to be a lot coming from that as well the films we're sticking to what we know and love usually i'm the skeptic i tend to go in and go nope didn't like that film and i tear it apart and then mike who's my co-presenter he he loves the films because he gets to go with me and watch them for free rather than paying for them <laughs> normally. that's a good encouragement uh, yeah. but yeah he's found it really interesting as well uh, because i listened to a lot of podcasts before starting ours up i kind of knew how i wanted it to work uh whereas he didn't really listen to any and he actually started listening to your guys podcast and subscribed to it and said the things that you guys do really helped him oh, so good. thank you very much oh, for that it. it's thank really that. appreciated but but i like the banter the two of you have and yeah. you know you're clearly old friends that comes across yeah. it's very warm it's very you know enticing it drags you into the podcast it's so. very much it is just that it's two mates sat around chatting but uh we love it and if things go to plan we're actually getting a third friend involved in it really? later in the year and then the banter will be mm. in the words of this is Spinal Tap turned up to 11 because Excellent. we're awful when the three of us get together um, so yeah we're loving it at the moment oh, we look forward to that yeah. and look forward to catching up with you some more updates from Sydney World absolutely Steve, thank you very much indeed thank you cheers Some fantastic films there, although the continual mention of Mel Gibson's movie Dragged Across Concrete does worry me. Oh, I've said it before. I'll say it again. He should be. (laughs) I hope that's Mel you're talking about, not me. Jeff, we'll talk about this off mic. Meanwhile, let's suit up for the movie news. Another thing I'm very worried about. What is this in my news? You want me to talk about Will Ferrell? Do you think you're going to make him my Mel Gibson? I'm hurt. Not at all. (laughs) Will Ferrell is nothing like Mel, although the two were great together in Daddy's Home 2. Really? There are two versions of Daddy's Home 2 and you watched a different one to me? The one without Mel Gibson? I don't think so. Ignore him, Neil. Would I ever set out to make you the butt of a joke? (laughs) Yeah, obviously. Just cut to the quick by that comment. Okay, Mr Ferrell did make Holmes and Watson, but remember he didn't win the Razzie for Best Actor. He was narrowly beaten by Orange Man. Joking aside, I do think he has had an interesting career. Who, Orange Man? No, Will Ferrell. It's George W. Bush. Actually, I can't believe I'm saying this. A real president was hysterical, and he was great in that movie, The Campaign. Also, he can do the serious stuff, as he did in Everything Must Go. The reason you are given an update on Mr Ferrell is because I think he has some interesting projects on the go. I'm not convinced, but I'll read on. So, according to Jeff, the first of these interesting projects is called Zeroville. This interesting film was made way back in 2014, and it looks like it's finally getting a release in September. 
Based on the book by Steve Erickson, it stars and was directed by James Franco, a star who has been the subject of some disturbing Me Too claims. Hmm, this doesn't sound good. Why wasn't it released before, Jeff? Is it that bad? I don't know about the quality, Neil. The reason the film hasn't been released is quite simple. The distributor went bankrupt shortly after the movie was made. And the reason I suspect it has now been picked up for release by another distributor is because of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, I get it now. Like the Tarantino movie, this is also set in the movie community of 1969. And again, it deals with the Hollywood transition that was taking place as the kids with beards, as Mr Spielberg said, were taking over. If Tarantino's film hits big, then Zeroville could capitalise on this. As for Will Ferrell's character in Zeroville, he is one of the Hollywood people who the main character, film obsessive Vicar Franco, comes into contact with. Let's hope it's good and not another Holmes and Watson. As I said, that was made a few years ago. Currently, Mr Ferrell is making Downhill, like his career. Downhill, sure, which... Harsh. <laughs> Downhill, which is currently being filmed in... Austria. Ah, Jeff, this is more my thing. A remake of a foreign language film. In this case, the excellent Swedish film Force Majeure. That film won the Uncertain Regard Award at Cannes. This will certainly be a challenge as the lead role is not what you would call a sympathetic one. Will Ferrell plays Tom, the head of a seemingly perfect family. Tom takes his family to Europe for skiing holidays. Tom's life changes when an avalanche is spotted heading towards their resort. Rather than protect his wife and children, Tom runs to protect himself. When the disaster doesn't strike, Tom must face his family and his cowardice. Bloody hell, that sounds interesting. Let's hope they get the comedy-slash-drama tone of this right. They should do. The filmmakers are the partnership of Nat Faction and Jim Rash, who wrote and directed the excellent The Way Way Back a few years ago. The cast also looks great, with the wonderful Julia Louise Dreyfus playing his wife. She is fantastic in Veep, and it's good to see that she's recovered from her illness. Also cast are Mirando Otto, from The Lord of the Rings and Homeland. Also excellent as Aunt Zelda in the new Netflix show, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Ah, right. And the wonderful comic actor, Zach Woods, from Silicon Valley. At the moment, this is scheduled for a 2020 release. However, given everyone involved, it could be brought forward to Christmas to make it eligible for awards. And lastly, for Will Ferrell, we have Eurovision. Jeff, are you taking the piss now? What? Surprisingly, Graham, I don't think he is. You see, Will and his Swedish wife, actress Vivesha Paulin, have been fans of Eurovision since 1999. He was there last year watching the finals and spent some time with the contestants. Will Ferrell and Andrew Steele of Saturday Night Live fame have written the script, which uses some of his experiences. One of the other reasons Mr Ferrell was at... Eurovision last year was to get permission to film there this year as part of the backdrop to the film. This is scheduled to shoot straight after he has finished work on Downhill. It is unlikely that we will see Eurovision in the cinemas as this is being made for Netflix. But given the controversy between cinema and streaming these days, who knows? Jeff, over to you. Do you know, Neil, I'd like to see you and Graham on Eurovision. I think you could do a great version of that song, Jeff is Awesome. 
You can't get any lower points than Britain normally no, does, no, can you? Can't, can't get any lower than you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, on to some serious film news then. Due to start filming in London late April, is the period comedy not bloody likely? While those words may seem harmless now, except to show editor Graham, who'll probably cut them out, <laughs> yep. they were very controversial when spoken back in 1914. That was when George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion was first staged in London. That line, uttered by the character of Eliza Doolittle, caused a public outrage at the time. There were probably some Daily Mail readers who were still offended. <laughs> in fact, for years after, the swear word bloody was known as a Pygmalion. Now, the film covers the events surrounding that 1914 production and the moral panic that followed. There is no casting news as yet. What is known is that the film is written and will be directed by Joel Hopkins, who has previously made the charming Hampstead and Last Chance Harvey. Expect Not Bloody Likely to be in cinemas for summer 2020. Interesting fact for you guys. There was further upset with Pygmalion when the 1938 film version was released. The British censors objected to the word bloody the first time it was used in a British film. Good job they're not around for today and review some of this superhero shit I have to see. Over to you, Graham. I'm really worried reading this. There doesn't appear to be any male news in here. That's right. It's about superhero movies now filming in the UK. How accommodating am I to you? Gibson off. Why? <laughs> Does there need to be a reason, Graham? Can't I j just be taken at face value? No. No, no. What's the payback for this? <laughs> well, nothing really. It's just something very minor. We'll talk about it off of Mike no, later. No, no, no. Let's talk about it now. Oh, OK, if you insist. Yes. It, it appears... One of our listeners has started an online petition for you to review the Mel Gibson movie Dragged Across Concrete. Is that listener you? Yeah, is that just you or your imaginary friend? I, yeah. I, I've no idea where it came from. Oh, yeah, right. Really? No idea? Why am I not believing this? No, no. no. And, and this petition now has over a thousand signatures. Oh, hi. Gibson off. <laughs> How many times can you Great. sign the whole Hang thing? On. Yourself. Graham, it's the will of the people. <laughs> you don't need to march through London for this. It's will of the person. Will of the people. OK, we'll discuss this later. Meanwhile, I am, for once, going to enjoy my movie news slot. Over the next few months, there will be two big superhero movies filming in the UK. Currently filming in London is Morbius starring Jared Leto as the title character, a doctor who accidentally turns himself into a living vampire when an experiment goes wrong. You know, that old chestnut. Yeah, sounds like a horror film to me. <laughs> Actually, he is a villain who normally battles Spider-Man. As this is from Sony, I think they are looking for the same type of success they had with Venom last year. Also in the cast are former Doctor Who star Matt Smith as the villain of the movie called Loxius Crown. Adria Ajona, Pacific Rim Uprising, will play Morbius's love interest, Martine Bancroft. Hot off the press, Therese Gibson from the Fast and Furious movies has also joined the cast. Filming will continue until May under the direction of Daniel Espinosa, best known for Safe House and Life. Morbius will open in cinemas in July 2020. Another film which was also due to be filming in London at the same time, but has now been pushed back, is Black Widow. Yes, Scarlett Johansson 
will reprise her Marvel character for an Origins movie. The, the plot is set after the fall of Soviet Russia. Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Black Widow, leaves Russia for America, but KGB operatives are determined to kill her. To be honest, it sounds a little like Red Sparrow, although I'm sure there will be some sort of powerful supervillain threat which Natasha will have to battle. Filming will take place between June and September, based mainly in London, but also some filming will take place in Croatia and Miami. Why was the filming delayed? For script revisions, apparently. They are adding a younger character to the film. However, Kate Shortland will remain as director, although the plan to open Black Widow late 2020 will be changed. I suspect this will now go back to 2021. One other bit of information we've been hearing but are yet to confirm, starring alongside Scarlett Johansson, will be Emma Watson. That is interesting casting, and we expect it to be confirmed in the next couple of weeks. Jeff, I have to say, that was refreshing film news. I feel cleansed. Don't worry, Graham. Jeff will soon put an end to that. In next month's reviews. OK, enough nonsense. Let's go talk to our latest contributor, Elijah. Over the last few months, I've got to know Elijah through that wonderful medium of Twitter. Which Graham and I had to show you how to use. <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, Elijah has an excellent knowledge of movies and is working his way through some of the classics. We thought it'd be a great idea to also re-watch some of these films and then discuss their merits. So for this first Rediscovering the Classics with Elijah, we talk about Blade Runner and the sequel Blade Runner 2049. It was a fascinating discussion and we look forward to many more. Please note that as this is a detailed discussion of both movies, there will be spoilers. Over to you, Jeff. Hello, and this is your At The Flicks team here, speaking to Elijah over in the States. Elijah, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. So what we're going to be doing is, and this is a, a new series that we're going to incorporate into the shows, we're going to be talking about classic films, getting your take on them as you approach them probably for the first time. Yeah, unfortunately, I've missed out on a lot of them growing up, so... No, that's all right. Got a massive list that I'm trying to catch up on. Hey, that's fine. We're there to help. Okay, so this time we're going to be talking about Blade Runner. You've now seen Blade Runner and its sequel, Blade Runner 2049? Yeah. Yeah, I've watched them twice in the past couple of weeks. And you watched them in reverse order. You watched 2049 first. Yeah. So was it easy to follow, not having the first one to see first? It was. I'd seen, I think, the first 20 to 30 minutes of the original but it was late at night. I was like over at a friend's house. I had to go back home. I ended up falling asleep. I kind of missed that. But I'd, I'd seen enough of it. You know, I'd seen the whole Tears in the Rain speech. I kind of knew the gist. So going into 2049, it wasn't a completely new experience. But I can definitely say that after I went back and watched the original and watched 2049 again, a lot more, you know, popped out and made sense. So which is the better for you, the original or the sequel? I don't know. They're both very different films. The original is so iconic, you know, there's nothing really that can match that, I don't think. But the sequel, it's such a great movie. I'd agree with that. I saw the original one the day it came out uh, as a hardcore sci-fi fan uh, back in September 82. We had it in the the UK. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I thought the first could never be eclipsed. So I went into 2049, and I, thought, and I was quite worried when I, when I went into the cinema, and I thought, eh, this will probably be good, because I like Villeneuve as a director, but it'll never top the original 2016. 
it's set in 2016, so I always refer to it as 2016. I think they both stand as absolutely incredible pieces of work. The first was completely seminal, and I think the second one stands on its own as a, as a wonderful piece of science fiction with a, an incredible central theme, that of do your memories really define who you are, what lengths people will go to, whether they're created by humans or are uh, created by nature. I just thought wonderful central themes and a great, great idea for a second film. And I liked that, that the planet Earth had had actually got worse <laughs> in in the period, you know, because the, the, <laughs> the, the first one was pretty down and then you get to the second one and it's even more shit. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting, going back to a point that you, you put out in, in some of your tweets about the fact that every still from this film would make a great picture. Yeah, every every single shot is picture. It, it, it's perfect. <laughs> Everything is perfect. Uh, I think it makes sense when um, I was watching the bonus features on it, and uh, they were saying that Roger Deakins and uh, Denny worked like immediately from the start in pre-production together, like before they even had a team. Really, it was just them two figuring out all these scenes and sequences and set pieces and and lighting and camera angles. The first time I watched it, I was kind of in awe. Yeah. <laughs> and so I missed a lot of things because I was just so overwhelmed by the, the visuals. I totally agree. The uh, Roger Deakins is, is just a, a cinematographer of unmatched capability. When they're in the room with Wallace and it's got uh, that sort of platform in the middle and the water around it and the lighting mm-hmm. effects on the wall are incredible and it's this semi-darkness and then Wallace comes in with all these little floating uh, drones that give him sight it was just incredible and I thought there's a sci-fi movie perfected you know that's mm-hmm. exactly how it looks here's a blind guy surrounded by these little pilot fish I think they were called going into a room full of water and the lighting is just so moody and then a, you know we have Kay turns up He's a replicant. And then they had recreated Rachel for Deckard. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is it, this just doesn't get any better than this. This is totally perfect science fiction. Yeah, they uh, they use the motif of light and water a lot in the film. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, bit- almost any time like you're in a in a room, there's kind of there's you know, there's either rain or still water with ripples. Yeah, it's just everything is everything is beautiful. Yeah, um, we were talking to a um, film editor and she was saying the first things you take out or you edit out of the actual finished movie are all the stuff the cinematographer really loves. I think Roger Deakins <laughs> actually said, no, none of this is coming out. This is all my stuff and it's all brilliant. And I think most people just agreed with him and went, right, we'll leave all that in. Yeah, I don't I don't know how you could disagree with Roger Deakins with, no, his, no. <laughs> with his track record. No, true. This is where I get a bit controversial. So both of you guys love the film, and we'll go on and talk about the original in a minute, but I really don't like Villeneuve as a director. I just find him... Yeah, the shot is everything, but there's no emotion. I felt there was no emotion in Blade Runner 2049. Oh, on that, I would, I would disagree. <laughs> yeah. uh, well yeah. done. Well said. Three yeah. to one. Three yeah. to one. It's all right. You, you no, keep disagreeing. Gosling's, Gosling's performance is spectacular very similar to his performance on first man it's very subdued kind of very under the radar but you see as the film goes on he starts out you know emotionless 
he's got that baseline. He never he never wavers from that. And as it goes, you see that baseline of his facade and his face just cracking and uh, everything kind of coming out as his journey of self-discovery happens and, and all everything that he's experiencing, just the, the realizations that he's coming to just break that. And you start to get that emotional pull, especially the, in the relationship with him, between him and Joy, his little um, hologram girlfriend. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. I, I love that as well. And I would I would agree. And I like that you use the word baseline because they keep worrying the whole way through that he's going to lose his baseline and that he'll start to go sort of rogue on them. So, yes, he, he mm-hmm. does. He does start to lose his baseline. He does start to become actually more human and more connected to the world. And, and then when he meets with uh, Deckard, it's just brilliant. The, the two characters seem to really spark off one another. And I know Jeff was really annoyed that Deckard didn't appear until we were almost an hour into the movie. Yeah, because he was the only character <laughs> of interest to me. But you do make a really good point. Like you, you make a connection I hadn't made. When we reviewed First Man, again, I got a kick in from these two because I didn't like it. And I, well, I liked the film. I didn't like Gosling's performance and I felt it was just emotionless and I could understand why. But I'd never connected it with this. Now I do for the first time. Yeah, mm-hmm. you were you were wrong about First Man as well. Yeah, I know. In your opinion. No, no, no. In Everybody's no, opinion. That's not an opinion. That's a fact, Jeff. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> Ryan Gosling's performance I've got to be careful you because you'll have Elijah replacing me and all three of you will just agree on everything what are you doing next week Elijah <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's talk about the performances over the two films so we've mentioned Ryan Gosling what about other performances what do you think of Harrison Ford Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford he's perfect he's, he's so great all of his little like the little emotions that he, he that he shows in his face the little quirks in his personality show up so often. So you can see like kind of a little bit of Han Solo, you see a little bit of Indiana Jones, and you get, you know, the original character that he's playing as Deckard. One of my favorite scenes with him is when he's in that, what is it, like a speakeasy type thing. And he yeah. switches to be that like inspector, like little sleazy inspector. Yes, yes. It's <laughs> so great to see him in that, to play that character. Do you remember that with the snake? Yes. Yeah, yes. I just said yes, the where he's, yeah. he's trying to be the... Yeah. Uh, the guy from the League of Protection of Animals or something, yes. yes. And he, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's just... And she plays it beautifully because you know she doesn't believe a word of it from the outset. She realises he's a Blade Runner and all she's worrying about is how can I get away from this guy as quickly as possible or if I, can I actually defeat him? And she doesn't and with the obvious she, consequences. She, she screws the her, her opportunity to kill him. But uh, I think in the first Blade Runner you've got... The performance from from Ford, and you got the performance from uh, uh, Rutger Hauer, and those are, I think, the only real stand out performances. I mean, everyone's good, but those two are like giants among regular people. Not not Sean Young. She just she's not given much to do. She's only in three scenes really, where she actually has an opportunity to to play, and most of the time it's just a shot of her face, and she does excellent in her role. I just don't feel like she's given enough to do. So, just moving on, this is why the first film really works for me, uh, and I think it is a masterpiece and the second one doesn't. There's a hook in the first film in that it was made in the early 1980s, made in 1982. It goes 40 years forward in what it's projecting, but it goes 40 years back 
in how it presents it. In other words, it presents it as a private detective mystery thriller for a lot of the film. Mm-hmm. And and that, to me, was a great hook in there. Yeah. Plus, Vangelis' score, I thought, was amazing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and I didn't have that grounding in the second film. And, and I guess that's why I was lost a little bit until Ford turns up. Clearly, you didn't think that. Because I'm not watching it in the time period where it came, I'm not getting that kind of impact that you would have had. And uh, so I'm, I'm seeing it essentially as uh, another film, a very, very ex- excellent film, a film noir, which I don't really see a whole lot of. But it, I guess it just doesn't have the, the impact because I'm, I'm not watching it in the time period where, you know, was being made at the time. So, like, I'm, I think I'm having the same reaction to 2049 as you possibly had with Blade Runner in that 2049 is such a departure from what we typically get in our sci-fi films today. I kind of went like a little giddy schoolboy watching it. <laughs> And that worked for you, Graham, didn't Oh, it, it did. Yeah, uh, again, yeah, you're absolutely right on the nail there. I mean, good sci-fi has a central theme. So it, it, in films like Arrival, it's time. and Is time linear? And what if time is circular? So you have that. Mm-hmm. In, in Dune, the ability to see into the future, and does that mean that you can predict the future? Well, no, because there's multiple timelines. And I thought that when I watched the first Blade Runner, it suddenly occurred to me, oh, hang on, these creatures, these replicants are humanoid, but they've got a four-year lifespan, and they're basically slaves. And after mm-hmm. four years, we're going to kill them. You know, they'll just die. And... It becomes really a deep, deep film about the nature of owning things and uh, and the nature of slavery, and it really is quite dark. And on top of that, they then layer this, uh, as you said, a straightforward uh, detective police procedural, find the replicants, kill the replicants, on top of that. And then Harrison Ford has his life saved by a replicant who delivers this beautiful speech about the nature of reality and only having a four-year lifespan and the things he's done and the things he's seen. So it was just beautiful. And it came out, uh, and just to go back to another point you were on about, um, when I saw it in the the early 1980s, a new romancer by William Gibson, the famous cyberpunk author, had just come out as a book. So I read the book and then went to see this film and it was just perfect because the book is exactly like the film and the look of the film and a lot of the Japanese stuff in the in the film is also in in uh, New Romancer the book so for me it was just the perfect um, coming together and plus we'd never seen anything like this at the cinema it was just so different so adult so new so really really good sci-fi and yeah, I, and he did it again with 2049. I thought Villeneuve knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I think with the first one, I was showing the opening scene to my wife because I wanted her to see, you know, what what this was. And she's looking at it. It's like, oh, it looks great. And I pointed out, like, none of this is CGI. Like, there is no computer-generated mm. anything in this image. Yeah. And she's yeah. like, you're kidding. No. Oh, everything real looks, effects. It's yeah. so, so perfectly done. The production design was astounding. And uh, Denis actually replicated a lot of that. He used a lot of miniatures. He used a lot of um, of actual props and things. But like instead of having green screen on the windows, they actually had things behind them so that the characters can re- interact and feel like they were actually in the space. And I think that helped ground it a lot for me. I, I can't tell the difference between the CGI and the real in 2049. And, you know and, I, and the other thing I loved was the use of windows, the constant use of windows. So you yes. see, you see K through windows. 
You see Joy trying to wake him up when he's in that little flying car. She tries to wake him up through that. Harrison Ford is viewed through the window when he's drowning. It's this constant separation from reality and this constant motif of people doing things in rooms slightly separated from reality. And the, the more you watch it, the more you see extra things. And it's just so well put together. And, you know, the scene in, in Las Vegas where they come in through the window to capture Deckard and, and to effectively, they thought they'd killed Kay. So all of that, yeah. I thought, was just great. Playing and constantly playing with the, the sci-fi theme and the look and uh, of the whole thing. It was great. I'm going to go home and watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going to recommend these two films to a friend of yours who hadn't seen them, what would you say to get them to, to watch it? So, so would your wife watch it? Does she watch science fiction films? Um, my wife is not really big into certain types of sci-fi. She's She doesn't like a lot of violence. So I watch these movies at like 2 in the morning when everyone's asleep. <laughs> you really don't sleep, do you? <laughs> to encourage people to watch these films, how would you, you approach that? I mean, I saw the, the Twitter account where you're saying about, you know, every shot is a portrait, certainly a 2049. Um, I would just go on the, the, the essential nature of watching Blade Runner. If you want to understand science fiction as it is today, you have to watch Blade Runner. There's no other way around it. If you want to understand science fiction like in video games, you have to watch Blade Runner because it influenced everything that came after it, essentially. Every visual representation, every – and then Vangelis' score. Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's amazing. It's so fantastic. Yeah. And you can hear elements of it in all kinds of different soundtracks. And, of course, Zimmer and uh, Peter Walfinch – they did fantastic kind of bring that Vangelis sound-ish, but updating it to make it more chaos and more more awful, like the world that you're in. And they still had moments of like stunning, like beautiful music that kind of accompanied it. And then, of course, they, they um, reference Vangelis' Tears in the Rain song yes, they do. Yeah. at the yeah. very end of the film. Yeah. The bizarre thing was, when the film came out, and it was the first one, it was such a flop, they didn't even bring a soundtrack album out, and this is clamour for the music. But rather than release the soundtrack, they did a cover, a, a, an almost orchestral cover yeah. uh, of the main tracks and put that out. It was 20 what? years. Yeah, I know. It was 20 oh, yeah. years before you could get the, the Vangelis soundtrack. You could, you, wow. could, you could get the actual soundtrack, and there was on bootleg tapes... There's that. That's shown my age. So I, I did have an. Uh, yeah, I did have. Cassettes a, are back. The, cassettes are back. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's because the nineties are coming back. And yeah. Good Lord, I'm not ready oh, for dear. that. No, no, neither am I. I lived through it once. That's enough. Yeah, the nineties uh, sucked. Yeah, so I had it on a. I had it on a bootleg cassette for years, and then the cassette mangled itself. So there you go. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. I hated when that happened. Yeah. Digital files now. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. Infinite copy. Everything's awesome. Yeah, everything, everything is awesome. awesome. Yeah. Obviously, one of the themes on the film, certainly the first one, and it does come through into the second one, is about you know this guy creating life, and there's a, I guess, a spirituality about it. Now, again, I know from you know read, reading what you write on Twitter, you're a very spiritual person. Mm -hmm. Did that have any meaning to you in these films? Um, it did. The, the Blade Runner, the original, it touches on topics and kind of it. It doesn't really develop the ideas, but it presents them. So they're they're there for discussion. They're there for thought. Twenty forty nine kind of develops the ideas a little bit more. It's it's much more about the ideas presented in the original than. The original actually was, I think. 
So the ideas of what it means to be human, you you can you can see Deckard, especially with the theory that he's actually a, a replicant. You can see him at the very beginning. You know, he's like, "Have you ever retired a human by mistake?" He answers immediately, "Nah, no, I haven't." And he's so sure of himself. And as the film goes on, he becomes less and less sure, and uh, more unsure of his his black and white world and about the humanity of the replicants. Especially at the end, when you have Rutger Hauer's Roy Batty take the he, he somehow he finds a dove on the roof yeah. and he jumps across and he uses the last bit of his life to to save him to kind of say screw you to the system that melt that made him to be a soldier to made made him to kill and he uses instead to save a life and then as he's talking about his memories his experiences trying to pass those on you know he releases the dove it's kind of like his it's, it's symbolic obviously of the soul and the spirit going back up and in 2049 you get more explicitly the idea of what it means for a non-human entity to become human yeah. you have yeah. k yeah, yeah. you know believing that he's the child of deckard and rachel and uh that slow burn of his discovery of that and him not wanting it to be true so he can keep that baseline he can keep his reality in check and his reality just completely getting ripped away from him and then finding out that oh no he's not the child yeah. Yeah. And instead, he's he's already beaten the system and the uh, the safeguards that were already that were put into him, and so essentially he's become a human who can now feel and who can now uh, do what he wants, you know, that have that free will. And there's that the ideas of free will and determinism, and uh, one of the interesting parts or like kind of little interesting Easter eggs is they mention something called the Galatians syndrome. Yeah. In uh, 2049, and the Book of Galatians, one of the things that's one of its um, themes is the idea of not being a slave but being free and so i think that's kind of what they were tying it into and then they also reference the nicene creed at one point joy looks at Kay and she calls him joe and says you were born not made and so that's a reference to the idea of when it's talking about jesus it says you're begotten not made of the father or begotten not created uh, do you think though that the fact it never resolves is deckard human or a, a replicant do you find that frustrating or not? I did. <laughs> I don't actually find it frustrating. I think the point of it is that it doesn't actually matter whether he's a replicant or a human. That she's a new life. A com- she can either be a combination of replicant and human or she's entirely replicant. But she, whatever she is, she's a new entity. She's a new incarnation and I like the, of what's possible. I like the way that she was referred to as a miracle. That was also yeah. a nice religious overtone. You've never seen a miracle. So that that great line from the actor Batista was just perfect when he said, you know, you're a, you've never seen a miracle. And of course, he had seen a miracle, which was the birth of a child from a replicant. So then what does that make that child and the children of that child as well? So it just layers upon layers. So so much so that, as you, you rightly say, Elijah, that the fact that uh, is Deckard a replicant or human doesn't really count anymore because everything is intermingled now. So you have some people who were mm-hmm. created, some people who were born, some people who were uh, born from something else that was created. And it's just wonderful, just brilliant. Yeah, I think... One of the interesting parts, I believe that uh, Ridley Scott said that he actually wrote most of the script and he just went uncredited for it. And this film falls very much in line with uh, Prometheus and with Alien Covenant 
and with his ideas of what it means to be created and to find your creator, to find purpose and find meaning. And what happens when your creator actually doesn't care about you? And what if your creator wanted to destroy you? And that's kind of what we see again happen in Blade Runner 249, actually explicitly when um, Wallace kills the first replicant that we get to see born. Out of interest, what did you think of Prometheus? I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah, I thought it was great. Again, I wasn't expecting an alien movie because it had been – I watched it after like three or four years after it had come out. So I knew that it wasn't alien, alien film. I loved it because it, it asks big questions, which you can't answer. But the fact that mm-hmm. you take a summer blockbuster, doing that really impressed me. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. And Ridley Scott seems to be absolutely fascinated with these ideas. And I don't think he knows how to answer them, but he's – he he seems to be seeking them and seeking them through the art that he creates. And I, I find that absolutely fascinating about his films. And I do. And I wonder whether, since the death of his brother, whether that's intensified within him. Oh, OK. Yeah, because his brother... It definitely seems like more of his films have kind of have done that. He's lost two brothers now, hasn't he? I didn't know that. I know about Tony. Uh, Tony jumped off the bridge, didn't he? I think one of his brothers died of disease and he dedicated the film to him. I forget oh. what it was. Okay. Maybe Legend or something. Wow. Okay. Um, I was not aware of that. No, not me. Okay. I could be wrong. Well, no, 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 I read a lot of things on the internet. Yeah, (laughs) but but it's it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And and what this has done for me, I will actually now go back and rewatch Blade Runner twenty forty nine and try and forget this Villeneuve film. And (laughs) you know, because he's going to screw up Dune next. I'll tell you, it's coming. You can't screw up Dune more than it's already been screwed. So, yeah. <laughs> you didn't like the Lynch version then. I couldn't finish it. Right. So I will be watching Blade Runner 2049 and I'll report back on this next month. I'll rewatch it. <laughs> Elijah, thank you very much for your time on this. Have you got any final words you want to say on the Blade Runner films? Other than, you know, watch them. They're, they're great. They're, it's great cinema. Nearly perfect, in my opinion. And, and Graham's as well. I would agree with you on the first one, but I will rewatch the second one and see if that changes. Elijah, it's been great to talk with you, and we'll look forward to you on next month's show. All right, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. It is always good to talk about some of my favourite films. Thank you, Elijah, and we look forward to talking to you again. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Okay, guys, off to get those movie reviews ready. And, Jeff, can I have a little word with you about Mel Gibson, please, and that petition you set up? Before that, it only remains for us to say... Let's drag him across concrete, shall we? I'm up for that. Careful, Neil. There's a pet cemetery petition all set to go with your name on it. Oh, God help me. God, how I missed the Liam Neeson stories of last month. And to everyone else, thanks thanks for for listening listening and and goodbye. goodbye.